You're listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. It's a pleasure to welcome Robert Von Hasselen to the program. How you doing, Rob? Good, Bob. How are you? Okay. Uh, Rob Von Hasselen is Amsterdam, New York City historian, director of the Inman Senior Center in Amsterdam, one of the founders of Historic Amsterdam League. He's commander of Amsterdam's Polish-American Veterans Organization, and Rob is a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel who has a great interest in history, but maybe in particular a military history because of your Army background. In fact, did, did you not work on history for the U.S. Army? Yes. Initially, it was uh, what they call an additional duty, in addition to whatever else your assignment is. But towards the end of my career, I was a military and naval historian for the state of New York, and then I was the uh, first director of the uh, renovated and expanded uh, New York State Military Museum, which is now in Saratoga. Mm. In fact, I remember you leading a bunch of us on a tour to Albany and some of the uh, veterans' monuments in the uh, state capital city, and uh, you had something to do with uh, those monuments, as I recall. Just about all of them. Um, we, on that tour, we started at the USS Slater, which, of course, is the only destroyer escort from World War II still in the water. And uh, I was involved in getting it uh, to Albany. I was um, uh, working with a strategic planning group, and we were working on, actually, of all things, trying to educate former Soviet officers to become Russian officers and invest in having a more democratic army. And I was down with them on the Intrepid, and I noticed the the Slater, which was kind of wallowing there and paying $100,000 a year to, uh, to birth at the Intrepid. And we talked to Mayor Jennings in Albany, and we made the arrangements and got them not only to come up here, but the, the legislature started supporting them. So they weren't not only paying out money, they were actually earning some money towards the restoration. Then at, on the same tour, we went over to the uh, World War II Memorial, the state World War II Memorial, and, and all the inscriptions you see there, the names of the battles, the names of the campaigns, the dates, mm-hmm. um, and the uh, the quotes on the front and back of the panels, uh, I selected those. Mm-hmm. And then on the opposite side of the library, we went to the Women's Veterans Memorial, and I had worked on uh, the design of that with a former Times Union cartoonist, Ty Rosen, who was mm-hmm. a sculptor. And I prepared for the committee's approval the uh, the bronze tablets, the three tablets that contain the uh, the bullet points about women's military history. And then a little further up the road is the... Uh, uh, Korean War uh, Memorial, which I had a hand in uh, uh, revising and updating. Yes, and uh, honestly, I had not visited those memorials before we went on that tour, and they were they're very good. And all and the Slater, I just another word about that. I mean, that's become a real attraction on the Hudson River waterfront in Albany. It's one of the things that actually gets people to go there because it isn't that easy to get to the waterfront in Albany. It was a hoot working on that project. Uh, we. Uh, we got around the law very, very nicely because technically a U.S. warship is sovereign U.S. territory and must remain so without the permission or change, being changed by an act of Congress. But because this ship had been transferred to the Greek Navy and then come over here, um, it did not have to lose its sovereignty. We didn't, have, we didn't need the act of Congress. And the other thing is that because sometimes this stuff dovetails nicely, because I was the director of the military museum, 
uh, private citizens aren't allowed to have operable three-inch naval guns. Mm-hmm. And um, so what we technically did is we transferred the guns, or they donated the guns, to the New York State Military Museum, and we immediately put them back on permanent loan on the deck of the Slater. So they never moved, they just, the guns actually moved in, in terms of ownership. And we also used to tell the legislators, uh, you know, re- remember the uh, Potemkin, remember the Aurora in the oh, Soviet Revolution. We've got three-inch guns trained on the state capitol, <laughs> so keep that in mind when you're, when you're thinking about allocating some money for the restoration of the ship. We'll have another uh, story about uh, guns on ships in, uh, in just a few minutes. We're talking with Rob Von Hasselen, Amsterdam, New York City historian. Uh, another, one thing that you were just recently involved in uh, has to do with the Order of the Purple Heart. There was a Purple Heart Veterans Organization, that may not be the correct name, or there is such an organization, and it had an Amsterdam chapter, but apparently the the chapter uh, is no longer able to continue because of declining uh, membership, Uh, but uh, veterans in the Amsterdam area, including yourself, have done something about that. What did you do? Well, uh, on Monday we had a special ceremony at the Polish-American Veterans uh, Headquarters on Church Street pretty much right across from Grand Army, the Republic Park, the south lawn of, uh, of uh, City Hall. And the last two members uh, uh, came out and unveiled a stone which the PAV purchased uh, for the front lawn, memorializing uh, the many decades that the Military Order of Purple Heart, Chapter uh, 118, the, the Henry F. Schott chapter, uh, was here in, in the city. And that's appropriate because for years we hosted their meetings. We, uh, we worked very closely together. And the organization actually goes back to uh, pretty much the time of the, of the refounding of the Purple Heart Medal in 1932. And was very, very active in the city in charities and veterans affairs, in uh, the parades, uh, ceremonies. And uh, it's... Uh, very interesting story in and by itself how the Purple Heart came about. Mm. Now it's changed over the years, uh, but I think the guys were really touched to know that now that uh, you know people going up Church Street are going to be able to see this stone and, and know that uh, there was that presence here in the city. Well, can you tell us about uh, the the Purple Heart? How did it change, and how does the army, or I'm sorry, the military, I suppose, uh, award the Purple Heart? Well, it, it changed. Uh, radically over the years. Originally, actually, we picked uh, August 7th to do the ceremony because August 7th, 1782 was the first award of the Purple Heart. Actually, it was called the Badge of Military Merit then. And General Washington wanted to reward meritorious enlisted men, but uh, Congress prevented him from commissioning them or promoting them without any, you know, just on the basis of... Uh, of uh, heroism or meritorious service. So he created this little purple heart-shaped badge that was worn on the lower sleeve, and it didn't uh, do much except convey a great sense of respect. One practical aspect is that normally in those days, officers were always allowed to pass through a a sentry or uh, post without being challenged. Uh, But um, other than officers, the only Three people in the Army, because we only have records of three of them being awarded, who are allowed to pass without being challenged were the three recipients of, uh, of the Badge of Military Merit. 
And in World War I, uh, General Blackjack Pershing wanted to bring it back, but there were delays, and Congress finally approved it. And the next time it was awarded was on uh, Washington's birthday in 1932. And in those days, it could be given for merit, heroism, or being wounded or killed in action. And at first, it was just for the Army and the Air Corps, and then they expanded to the Navy, and then they allowed civilians who were working with the military, then they revoked that, and then they allowed it to be awarded posthumously to next to the kin, and it changed. But pretty much after 1943, it's restricted to uh, military service members who are uh, wounded, uh, killed in the line of duty, or died later of wounds. This may be completely off the mark, but... It seems to me I used to hear that you had to be wounded three times, or is that nothing? I mean, that's not true. No, no. You might be thinking that one of my favorite Bill Malden cartoons is a real beat-up GI in Italy, and he's saying to the medic who's handing him uh, the Purple Heart in the case, he says, nah, uh, I already got three. Just give me some aspirin. Right. Uh, but no, you, you you can be wounded. It's it's very complicated. Most people don't realize the military takes this very seriously. Uh, you can be wounded. The first wound uh, it counts, mm-hmm. and each subsequent wound counts as a uh, an additional award. But it has to be directly due to enemy action. Um, for example, if you're moving to the front and you jump off the truck and you uh, you break your leg. That's not Purple Heart. That's almost considered like a workplace accident. However, if you were your truck comes under fire and you've got to get out in a, in a hurry and you break your leg, mm-hmm. that's due to military. That's due to enemy action. So that could be considered for the Purple Heart. You and I were talking uh, when we were setting up the program uh, that there was a man from Amsterdam, John Duchesse Sr., the father of. Uh, the mayor of Amsterdam for a number of years, John Duchesse Jr. And I interviewed John Duchesse Sr. about several topics. You know, his growing up in Amsterdam, his boxing career. He was an early boxer, one of the first boxers to be seen on television, on WRGB-TV before he entered uh, the service in the early 1940s. But I know know that he had uh, the Purple Heart and, in fact, became uh, a kind of a high-ranking officer in the the organization, the the veterans uh, group. And uh, you knew something about his his service. He was wounded uh, with the um, construction battalions uh, in, uh, in, in not Sicily, I don't think, but in yep. Italy. Yeah, I, as I recall, uh, he was wounded uh, in the vicinity of Monte Cassino, which was a horrific battle, and he was serving in the combat engineers, uh, much like uh, our current mayor's father also served in the combat engineers, uh, both in Italy and later in, in, in France and Germany. And uh, combat engineers are the guys who build things and blow them up. Uh, hopefully not the same things. But their job is to uh, clear minefields, uh, blow up obstacles, build bridges, uh, build fortifications. uh, And yet they're all trained to be fully competent as infantrymen because they may have to serve as infantrymen if, if they need additional forces, but also because they're often performing these jobs in the line of fire. So they have to literally put down their, their uh, technician's tools and, uh, and pick up a rifle or man a machine gun. And as I said, Monte Cassino was a, a terrific battle. It uh, took us forever to break through this uh, fortified ridge that the Germans held. 
with the monastery on top of it. And, uh, and finally, after repeated repulses, we were able to break through. But uh, they had done, a, the Germans did a tremendous job of uh, creating these fortifications, one line after another in Italy, and they would constantly have to be breached by uh, combat engineers. Hmm. We're talking with Rob von Hasselen, Amsterdam, New York City historian, one of the founders of Historic Amsterdam League, and a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel. We'll have more with him about military history and other topics in just a moment. This is Bob Cudmore. I hope you'll consider a contribution to our GoFundMe campaign for the Historian's Podcast. We welcome your donation in any amount. Go to the following website, gofundme.com forward slash historians2017. If you'd like to send a donation by mail, you can make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. That's 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. Continuing with uh, Rob von Hasselen, uh, another military history topic. When you were talking about the Slater, you mentioned their guns. Uh, recently in my uh, Daily Gazette column, uh, I had uh, used research you had done in an article uh, you had written, your research on a cannon that was installed, I think, almost 100 years ago at the cemetery in Amsterdam where a lot of my relatives are buried. It's called Fairview Cemetery in the West End. It, it overlooks the valley and St. Mary's uh, Hospital. Uh, what? Why was that uh, cannon placed there? Well, it was placed, uh, back in those days, the big veterans organization in Amsterdam was the uh, Grand Army of the Republic. In fact, there were two different posts. Uh, that's how many Civil War veterans lived here in Amsterdam. And they had previously done a memorial, and that's the big uh, monument and the, and the circle of gravestones at Green Hill Cemetery. Now they wanted to do something for Fairview after Fairview was opened some years later in the late 1890s. And um, so they used their contacts and probably uh, the good offices of, of Judge uh, John Maxwell, who was uh, GAR state commander, who had been in the Navy in, in the Civil War, to secure a naval cannon out of uh, Washington uh, Navy Yard and from the Civil War to be emplaced up there. And then to raise money, the uh, pastor of Emanuel Presbyterian Church on Guy Park Avenue uh, gave a series of talks about his world travels and to raise money. And they were able to have the cannon move and emplaced. And just recently... Uh, uh, Freddie Van de Bogart, who's of another veteran organization, the 40 and 8, as well as the American Legion and the PAB and so on, and the Purple Heart Society, uh, Order of the Purple Heart. Uh, Freddie did a complete uh, rehab uh, to my specifications so that the cannon is now back to its original appearance, and the cannonballs are uh, correctly painted in, uh, in red, which was the color coding they used for that kind of shell in those days. But uh, excuse me. So it was a memorial, and I, I, one of it was just a fascinating. You know, I used to have a professor that says, taught me that history is like detective work, except all the witnesses are dead. <laughs> and um, and I got started on this because one of my people. This is how things crosswalk all the time. One of my members here at the Enman 
is a member of the board of directors at Fairview, and she brought me a picture of the cannon and said, can you tell us what this is? And I was like, well, it looks like, but not exactly like. And I told her, can you go back and read off the markings? And I told her where to look on the cannon. And when she came back, the markings didn't even remotely match what it was supposed to be. So that, that got me on going on this and trying to figure out uh, how did the cannon actually go from where it was created all the way to Amsterdam, and why were there changes made to it? And uh, But before I go into that, the other interesting thing I learned out of this is uh, the pastor. And I was wondering why, why anybody would pay good money to go hear about this guy's overseas vacations. And then I found out the guy, the pastor, was one of the only Americans ever admitted to the uh, Royal uh, uh, Geological uh, Society mm. in Britain. And that's because he was an expert on the Middle East, and particularly the Dead Sea. And um, so here he is, you know, a local Amsterdam pastor, but he's world-renowned scholar in terms of uh, the Dead Sea. And what made it even more interesting is that when I was writing that article about the canon, I was sitting in the same dining room as he had occupied <laughs> when he was pastor of the church, only almost exactly 100 years later. Yeah. So he was writing his speeches there, and now I'm writing about him giving speeches to raise money for the yeah, camera. Stop on that. So you and, and your lovely wife, Maria, you live in the house that used to be the, what, the, the parsonage of the church? Yeah. Wow. Yep. And in fact, she asked me researching, uh, uh, she wants to know the name of everybody who lived there. <laughs> and I, do you recall, the, what was the name of this pastor? I, th I think I remember it, but I'm not sure. Uh, right off the top, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm having it was like Reverend, Reverend Putman the or, Center. It, but the, wasn't it Putman or Putnam? It, it's 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 Putnam. Putnam. Uh, Putnam Katie. Oh, Put. Oh, that was his first name. That's right. Yeah. Putnam Katie. And also for and uh, with the the cannon or the gun. I don't know if um, the, both of those terms are appropriate, but um, it was made in the Civil War. But like at the end of the Civil War. It was changed. It was what they call being rifleized. Can you give a quick account of what that means? Yeah, this was originally built as a, an 11-inch uh, smoothbore Dahlgren uh, naval uh, gun. And in that case, it's appropriate because it shoots flat trajectory. Uh, cannon's the more generic term. And uh, it never apparently, to the best I could figure, got mounted uh, during the Civil War, although a lot of mm -hmm. 11 inches with heavy hitters for the Navy in those days. Uh, but it got put into uh, storage in San Francisco. In the 1870s, the Navy wants to modernize. I mean, there's so much going on with armor plate, uh, rifled cannons. Uh, rifling is uh, the spiral grooves inside of a cannon. So instead of firing a, a smooth, uh, round cannonball that bounces as it goes down and can go off in different directions, a uh, rifling gives an elongated bullet-type projectile a spin, which helps stabilize it and keep the pointy in front, and it's much better for breaking through uh, armor plate. And as, as guns were improving and, and defenses were improving, the Navy wanted to modernize to keep up with other world navies. But Congress just, yeah, we don't have the money. We just fought a big war. Hmm. So they got the idea, we'll take some of these 11-inch uh, smoothbores send them back to the foundries, have them bored out, and insert a rifle sleeve and lock it in place 
So now what had been an 11-inch smoothbore is now a 8-inch uh, rifle. And so that was a way of, you know, we can't cut, uh, cast new cannons. Let us at least rebuild the old ones to get some more extended use out of it. And then there were several other modifications mm-hmm. made. Uh, but by doing that, they had to move the trunnions. That's the, uh, the center wings on, on which the cannon is elevated up or down. They had to trim off some of the top of the bore uh, or the muzzle uh, face uh, to redistribute the weight. Uh, and some other changes. And that's why it looks like a doll green, but it's not a doll mm-hmm. green. Mm-hmm. It's because it went through this conversion practice. And then it was used for uh, test firing at uh, a naval testing site in uh, Virginia and ended up at Washington. And this is very interesting. It's one of only like eight left in the world. Mm. And uh, the others are in museums or uh, uh, what they call them gate guards mm-hmm. at naval bases. But very few of them are left. All right. If you want to see it, it's in Amsterdam off uh, Steadwell Avenue at Fairview Cemetery. A uh, last topic. We have a few minutes left, uh, but I wanted to talk with you about an industrial history effort that's uh, ongoing right now involving uh, one of the powerhouses uh, that powered Amsterdam's carpet industry. It's located on the creek uh, that was instrumental in powering uh, early uh, mills in Amsterdam, the North Chuktanunda Creek. Can you uh, tell us what's going on with that? Yeah, it's part and parcel of something the city's working on to create a trail along the Chuktanunda. And one of the destinations we'd like to have people be able to walk into uh, the powerhouse and take a look at it and notice its architecture and read something about, you know, its its significance and its uses. And uh, we got a grant from the Preservation League of uh, State of New York to do that. And I prepared a paper in justification, which the city then used to go get the grant. And uh, uh, the powerhouse is fascinating. At first, I, I, you know, again, digging around trying to find out what's true and isn't. It was built, it actually looks like one building, but it's two. And the first one was built in 1914, and then it was expanded in, in 1925. And in that site, right around there, you can see the whole transition of, of industrial power. Uh, you go from uh, hydro-mechanical power, the early water wheels, mm-hmm. to uh, coal-fired steam and then electrical generation. And uh, the fascinating thing is you can still see part of the bridge where the, all the tubes, conduits, and pipes used to run out from the plant and bury themselves in the hillside over there and go on for another half a mile to power all the, all the sites up at the, what they call the north campus of the Mahasco uh, or Mohawk carpet mills. Hmm. And then, in addition, there were transmission lines that uh, led down to the power plant at the south campus, the old Shuttleworth factories, after they merged. So you could pass the power back and forth. You didn't have to buy it. You had train trestles, which would allow it to be brought all the way up from the river to this site. And it not only powered, uh, literally, the expansion of Mohawk uh, carpets into one of the biggest manufacturers in the world, it powered it in the sense of the cost savings, the efficiencies, the uh, uh, ability to transfer energy rapidly helped create a higher level of profit, which meant more employees, mm-hmm. more mills working, you know, more hands at uh, making more product. Hmm. Well, one uh, point about that, and, and me, really, I'm sort of an armchair historian. I, I didn't know what you, 
you folks were talking about when they first, I'd never seen this or heard of it, but that's because you have to actually get out of your chair and walk along the creek to see this building. Yeah, and uh, we're in the process now of, of doing rough drafts of uh, signage that'll go along the Chuck Denunda. And at each point you go along the trail, it'll tell you something interesting about the geology, the history, the industry, water power. Uh, and it'll, give, it'll help flesh out a lot of the information that, uh, like you see on the Mohawk Valley Gateway Overlook. Now, another point about the powerhouse is apparently it's in, or maybe this is what the study is, is looking at, but it seems to be in, in pretty good condition. It seems to be this uh, structure would be all right for tourists or hikers, if you will, to go on certain parts of it. Yeah, we've already established that the bridge is in pretty pretty good shape. You've got to take a little bridge over the creek uh, to get there. but uh, uh, And that would need, like, safety railing, because in those days they didn't they weren't concerned about those things. Uh, there are portions of the building that could be open to the public if they were cleaned, and then there are portions that probably would either not be practical or safe or economically feasible to open up. Uh, and uh, But enough of it to give you an idea of uh, what it was like, and then possibly also think of some adaptive reuse. Like I, Jerry Snyder and I used to always talk about, wouldn't it be a great location for a juice bar if you're going to put like uh, exercise equipment or fitness <laughs> trail through the area? Well, that would be something. Yeah. And this would be part of a number of points of interest along uh, along the North Chuckanunda Creek. Yeah, and the idea is to tie it all together so that eventually... You can come from, say, the Erie Canal hike and bikeway, go across the MVGO, come across with the train station connection, uh, and then go down uh, on the Chuckton- up the Chuckdenunda Trail, or eventually if the Riverwalk, uh, which we did a study on, gets built down to uh, Guy Park Manor and then pick up uh, uh, the Sassafras Trail. But it'll all be connected so that you can go wherever you want. And it's part of this big idea that this is a city unlike a lot of other cities, uh, I think you and I have talked about this before, where you don't have to you don't have to drive through another city to get to the city. You drive through the country, or <laughs> vice versa. If you want to get out in the country, you're only 10 minutes away. Or if you go to one of these trails, maybe only five minutes away. Right. And then you're in, and that's, a, that's an amenity that a lot of uh, people are coming back to the cities, but they still want to be able to have. Another um, something that the Historic Amsterdam League, which... Uh, you and uh, Jerry Snyder uh, co-founded, uh, has gotten involved in recently, uh, I believe under the, their current president, Dan Weaver, is, is working with this lady who has kayak tours on the Mohawk River uh, Erie Canal. Again, doesn't sound like my cup of tea, but, uh, but I can s- see this is a, a great activity. Yeah, people have been responding to it. In fact, I was doing, at the same time she was on the water, I was doing the walking tour. Uh, guided tour on, on the MVGO itself, and we're like, you know, waving back and forth to each other, people on the bottom on, on the kayaks and people walking across looking at the signage on, on the MVGO. It was a really great day. I mean, a lot of people out there looking at all this Amsterdam history. Mm. And certainly being on the river itself, I mean, have you done it yourself? I mean, I, I would understand, or my idea would be that it's a completely different perspective. I haven't done the kayaking, but I did serve as a historian guide on a, uh, a cru- cruise ship. And I, they actually have cruise ships on the, that come down through the Mohawk and the Erie Canal uh, from uh, Canada and New York City. 
And, uh, and my job was to point out everything. And it's a very different perspective. And that's one of the reasons why we insisted on getting the Amsterdam letters put back on the MVGO, because if you're not familiar with the river, it, you can lose track of where you are real quick. That is a good point. I remember when the bridge came, and it was I've enjoyed it from the beginning, but it was just sort of did my heart good to see that big Amsterdam written on the bridge. We wanted people to know where they were so that they could come back and see it. Well, Rob Von Hasselen, I thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, Rob is uh, Amsterdam, New York City historian, director of the Inman Senior Center there, a commander of that city's uh, Polish-American Veterans Organization, uh, a retired uh, U.S. Army lieutenant colonel, and one of the founders of Historic Amsterdam League. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. <laughs>